I'm Mike Breen, Public Awareness Officer for the American Mathematical Society, and I'm talking to Luis M.A. Betancourt, who's a professor of complex systems at the Santa Fe Institute in New Mexico, and we're talking about his research that he's done, the math connected with cities uh, and their growth and, and characteristics that they have. So, Luis, can you give us a little bit of an idea of the research that you've done and the math involved? Sure. So, you know, cities are a very old topic. A lot of people from many different disciplines have been interested in, in what they are and what they look like statistically and what they may be for in terms of their function. But I think it's fair to say that it's only been in the last uh, decades, maybe even a few years, that we've had enough data to start looking at cities seriously and start to abstract what are the mathematical patterns that they express. And so I think it wouldn't surprise anybody to say that cities are for social behavior. So they bring a lot of people together, and that's more or less obvious. But what is maybe a little bit less obvious and becomes interesting is that cities have very specific properties. They are general across almost everything that we do socially. So the rates of interaction between people become a little higher the, the larger the city, at least on average. And that means that the ability to do many of the things we do socially, both good and bad, also go up. So, for example, you see this typically in things that people measure or the census bureaus of the world measure, like economic performance, like wages or GDP, but you also see the same behavior in terms, for example, of crime. So basically, almost everything that involves people interacting with each other, forming teams, forming organizations, tends to be facilitated by bringing people together in space and time, and that's essentially the ultimate function of cities. Now, mathematically, this has a very interesting expression, which is that when you look at the rates of how we, for example, make money or spend money in cities as a function of their size, you see that if you live in a larger city, you make more money, but you spend more money. And you're typically more susceptible to crime, uh, but also we developed organizations that take care of this. So that, there's a bunch of things that accelerate together, and these have essentially the properties of what mathematically sometimes we call scale invariance. Sometimes it's related to ideas of fractals, but it's essentially the idea that as cities get larger, all these quantities increase by the same percentage as you as you double the size of the city, which is about a factor about uh, we used to say 15%, but what this paper predicts is that a factor of one sixth is sort of the magic round number that comes up of trying to understand how social networks of people, the space of the city, and its infrastructure all come together as one big network that then predicts these numbers. And people wonder, why is this happening with cities? And, and it, it sounds like mm -hmm. it boils down to the, the, you know, what makes a city a city, you might say, the interactions. Yeah, exactly. You, you may ask it, I, th I think, you know, usually it's true also of every mathematical problem and, and also problems in science, that usually you gain insight by changing perspective. And I think the key here is to try to ask the question in the following sense. What are cities for? What is it that they do? And, and under what conditions can they exist and exist over many different sizes? And so the answer is essentially that a city does exist to make possible rates of social interaction between people that can interact on larger social networks and at higher temporal rates and at the same time to do so in a way that doesn't cost more energy or even individual human effort. And so this brings the mathematics of how people move in space, the size of the city as an area, the networks of infrastructure that also have to be built as you go, so you build more roads and more pipes and so forth as the city grows, with, in some sense, the geometry, the geometry in the social space of social networks 
all these geometries have to, need to come together in a neat mathematical problem, and that's what predicts all these properties that we see. It's basically the way for us to realize our sociality on a very, very large scale, and in principle, in an open-ended way. And these properties are power laws? Yeah, they tend to be power laws because they have this property that cities can exist over many different scales in terms of either numbers of people or area or even the size of networks. So all these things are basically functions of each other. And so when you express, I don't know, wages versus the population of a city, you find that they're related by a power law. And this power law says that by this factor of about one-sixth, which is about 16%, every time you double the size of the city, you tend to have that wages go up by about the same amount. But so do costs and so forth. So it becomes sort of everything's entangled in a very interesting way. But the function of the city is this general function of allowing these sustained social contact rates. And then from that, you get lots of things that economists and sociologists have been talking about for a long time. For example, that you now can have people specializing in certain tasks and depending on others, to do other things. We have mechanisms by which you can have people learn more how to do things and also depend on each other and dividing labor and coordinating labor to create greater economic efficiencies and so forth. But the overall function of the city, regardless of what actually is being made, is the social accelerator. These laws seem to apply, you know, you were saying across time and, mm -hmm. and regardless of the size, they still scale up. Were you surprised like that? Were you th when you think about cities, you know, nobody would mistake, mm -hmm. let's say, Detroit for mm -hmm. Miami. And so right. it's kind of surprising that they could have these commonalities, or at least as to me. Yeah, so, so those, both those things that you said are true. There's a general effect of being a city, which is what we've been talking about so far. And then there are specific histories and specific dynamics that are more specific to particular cities like Detroit or Miami, of course, having to do with, of course, Detroit is a city that grew explosively fast at the time of industrialization while things were going well in that sense. But like many industrial cities, it's a city that was fairly specialized. And when that sector came down, it experienced a bunch of problems. It's a longer story. But uh, And Miami, of course, has a different history, different flavor, and it's organized certainly spatially in a very different way. But they express to a large extent the same properties that we've been talking about, but they have deviations and historical paths that are a little different. So what's interesting is that you can look at human systems such as cities and see what's general about being a city and express that mathematically, but also capture in, in some sense the exceptions to that average rule what is particular about specific places, and therefore leave room for things that people always worry about, which is how about individuality, how about free will, how about the spe specific flavor of, of Miami versus of Detroit. And so there's room for both things, and this is typically the character of many systems that are complex. But in cities, once we have this sort of mathematics, you can really start seeing it, measuring, quantifying it, and then you know building uh, mathematical ideas that explain these. That's Luis Betancourt of the Santa Fe Institute. And coming up in part two, Luis will talk about some of the other subjects involved in the study of cities, what he thinks about the future of cities, and some nice observations about mathematics.